Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Katie Joy Duke. Katie is an author, mindset coach for women and mothers, and a stillbirth and stage four breast cancer survivor. Her memoir, Still Breathing, My Journey with Love, Loss, and Reinvention, was a number one Amazon bestseller in family health and pregnancy and childbirth, and is available in paperback, ebook, and on Audible. After five months of chemotherapy, a left mastectomy and lymph node removal, and 28 rounds of radiation, she was declared no evidence of active disease in June of 2023 and plans on keeping it that way. (laughs) She has begun writing her second memoir, exploring her journey with breast cancer. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Katie, but before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes the show possible. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I'm so looking forward to talking to you today. Me too, Haley. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And, you know, first, I would just love to hear a little more about you and and what led you to write this amazing memoir. Oh, gosh, thanks. Well, so about me, where do I start? I feel like at this point, I'm 43 years old. I've lived many lives. Um, It's just I've had lots of big things happen to me that have felt like lines in the sand where, for instance, I might look back at a picture and go, oh, that's before that happened or that's after that happened, you know, where I can look back and see the awareness or not see that young woman that didn't know what was coming or, you know, had just found out what was go- what was coming. <laughs> but um, let's see, I just real simple. I grew up in South Georgia Um, I went to law school in Vermont. I practiced law for almost 10 years in New York State and Washington State. And then I met my husband out here in in Seattle area, and we dated for a little while. And he asked me to marry him back in 2015, and we found out we were on vacation in Hawaii, and we found out the very next day that we were pregnant. So we went from being boyfriend and girlfriend to being fiancés to being the future parents of uh, our baby girl. And um, we ended up having a beautiful wedding and a gorgeous pregnancy. 
And then um, we found out when we were in the hospital giving birth to our baby girl that her heartbeat had stopped. <sighs> and so she was stillborn at full term. And that was um, actually on October 26th of 2015. So she, her birthday was last week. She would have been eight years old mm-hmm. and, um, and her name is Poppy. And so um, as unfortunately thousands of parents do in the United States every year and millions globally, um, we went home without our baby and um, we had to figure out how to um, exist in the world as in my case, a a motherless, I mean, a a childless mother. So um, I started writing um, love letters to Poppy the night that we got home from the hospital. And, you know, it was just, I mean, it was just a a sadness that, and a, and a, and a confusion and and a shock and and a dismay of how this could have possibly happened. Um, But one letter led to the next. And I've always found really a lot of solace and, um, comfort in writing. So I just kept writing and I read a few memoirs by other amazing women who had also lost children. And that was very inspiring to me. And so I decided that I would tell my story and I committed six years to the story. I think one thing that's so beautiful about it is that I wrote it contemporaneously. So although the book has a tremendous amount of perspective and growth and evolution, um, because I wrote it over the course of six years um, and, you know, edited it at the six year mark, right? With all of that wisdom and growth and transformation and evolution, I wrote the stories as it was happening to me. And so it brings this very valuable perspective of what it's like to be going through the thing with me. And um, it was two months before my paperback and ebook came out, um, that I found out that I had stage four metastatic breast cancer. So the memoir itself has nothing to do with my cancer journey. It does include a story. Uh, the end of the book, uh, includes the story of my father's passing and he passed away from metastatic prostate cancer and how I was able to apply some of the wisdom that Poppy had taught me in spirit to my father's death and to, being present to him before he died, asking really intimate questions, sharing really spiritual deep thoughts with him about what it would be like when he was gone, knowing that he would always be with me because Poppy was still with me. So I I chose to, that, that became the arc of my memoir. I didn't know where the memoir ended. Like I couldn't figure out where this thing ended because it's just like, how do you stop it? It's not a, it's not a happy ending. It's um, I mean, it it is ish, right? But it it's not a fairy tale. It's you know, it's a tragedy in so many ways. But also, you know, I've I learned so much that what I felt the biggest gift of my story, I think, to the world is not only letting mothers know that they're not alone who have been through that kind of experience, but also we're all going to lose a parent. We're all going to lose someone that's so important to us, and I have seen the culture of denial that we live in, where people just like to think that death isn't actually going to happen or that this this terminal cancer isn't actually going to take this person's life. And so we avoid having really hard conversations out of fear or out of like facing the sadness. 
So I bucked all of that. And I had all of those conversations with my dad. And I, you know, I told, we talked about death and we talked about what it was doing to his body. And we talked about the strength of his spirit and, um, and how connected I would always be to him and how I couldn't wait for him to meet Poppy and, you know, all, all these, all these things. And so that's really, to me, one of the biggest gifts of my story. So beautiful. So you can, <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So when I got my cancer diagnosis, I was just like, you know, face plant where it's just like, Oh, well, like, what is someone trying to tell me? Like what's going on here? Yeah. I guess I get to use all this wisdom to myself. I get to stare down that dark tunnel again of my mortality and the, you know, temporal nature of all of this and the unknowing and the mystery. And now that the cancer, as far as we know, is is gone, it's like, wow, just this whole new lease on life and vulnerability and being present with people and setting boundaries and listening to my intuition and, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. I was going to ask you, you know, did the grief of losing Poppy and your dad help with, with coping with your cancer diagnosis? Yeah, definitely. I think for me, the absolutely the hardest part of coming to terms with my cancer diagnosis, especially when I was getting chemotherapy, because, you know, that stuff just messes with your brain anyway. And it, you know, I mean, just destroys you from the inside with purpose. So you're, you know, you're really vulnerable and you're, you're down. But as I explored the reality of my own mortality and that my life might be a lot shorter than I had hoped, um, the saddest thing to me was the thought of leaving my now living child behind. And she's, she just turned six. She was four at the time. And I just thinking about it now even makes me sad, you know, because it was like, I don't want her to be a motherless daughter. You know, I don't want that to be her destiny. I know I didn't have control over that necessarily. And I knew that she would ultimately be fine, but still I was like, Ugh, you know, I wanted this chance. You know, I wanted this chance to be a mommy. I wanted this chance to help raise and nurture another human being because my daughter now Moxie is just extraordinary. But I will say that <laughs> to answer your question specifically, yes, there's this really beautiful moment in my book where I call my husband to tell him that I just learned that my father had passed away. And what I will say about my husband, Eli, and I is that both of us lost our faith in the church a long time ago, but we're both deeply spiritual. Yes. So, <laughs> and I think a lot of people resonate with that. Absolutely. Deeply spiritual. And we're, I mean, if I had to declare a religion, I would say it's yoga and the studio is my church. And, you know, we're all there worshiping and getting into the temple that is our body. And, you know, so, but so my husband says to me on the phone, he, he, we kind of sit in silence for a few moments and, and then he like, <gasps> he gasps and, and, you know, I'm listening and he says, Katie, I, I can, I can see them there together. And I'm like, what, who? who, what are you talking, you know? And he's like, Poppy, Poppy was waiting for your daddy. Like they're there, they're together. And I, I was just, 
I mean, so touched that my husband was vulnerable enough to share that vision with me that he had that vision. And then to just give myself permission to believe that was possible, that Poppy could be greeting her grandfather who, you know, they never got, he never got to hold her, you know, because she was cremated and so few people ever got to hold her or meet her, but to think that they got to get together. And so having chosen that mindset, that belief, right? It's a choice. I choose to believe that that's a possibility and the comfort that that brings me. When I was just like in the pit of the cancer hell, (laughs) I had this awakening one day where it dawned on me that, wait a second, if Poppy and my daddy are together, that means when I die, I get to be with Poppy and my daddy. And then I was just like, okay. You know, I just, you know, it's like, I don't really want that anytime soon, but hey, that's, that's going to be my journey too. You know, I, I get to be with them too, in spirit, in essence, in, you know, in the, in the cosmos, in heaven, whatever we want to call it, right? Like in this, in this afterlife, right? And so that brought me this deep, deep peace. And it was an acceptance of my mortality. And it was an acceptance of this, this belief I have that is so strong that I am a spiritual being having a physical experience you know, and that this body is the temple, right? Like, and that's why it's so important that we nourish and take care of our temple and that we honor it when it's going through hard times and that we rest and that we slow down and all the things I've had to do now so many times in my life. And I keep learning over and over and over again. And the universe keeps reminding me no matter how hard I want to go or what I want to accomplish, or, you know, I have to always slow down and go back to those, you know, very baseline things to, to take care of of this physical being that is a complete miracle. Uh, complete. And it seems like in releasing that you, you were living with love and, and not fear, not fear of dying. Yes. Yes. So much, you know, and just coming to, you know, it's, I mean, it's, I'm also very, very open. I mean, and anyone in my community, anyone that follows me will know that like that. I mean, that is what people I think love most about me. If if I had to say, if I did a poll, (laughs) what do you love most about me? Um, (laughs) um, Is that I am so willing to talk about the hard things. I'm so willing to talk about what I'm struggling with. Because one, I process that way, you know, I'm a verbal processor. So when I hear myself say it, I learn, I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. That was interesting. Like, listen to what just came out of your mouth. Right. You know, like, and then also, but just the, 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 the light that I receive back, the, the, the love that is reflected back to me. That's why I fully embrace that I am a star, that I am a beacon of hope, that I am a beacon of light, that I have so much to share. Like I, I've just like, I'm like, at this point, I'm like, I, I used to be, I would say 10 years ago, I was very like, oh, I don't know, kind of like standoffish. Or like, that's so sweet of you. But like, nah, I can't, I can't really let that in. Now I'm, I'm just like, <laughs> my heart center is just like, bring it, bring it. <laughs> Love that. And that's how I realized that we need so much more of that because We've been, you know, told so many 
lies, quite frankly, by modern society and 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 culture and capitalism and greed and consumerism. And I mean, it's just like there's so much like disinformation out there about like what really matters. And so because I've been through all of it, I can say like, yeah, like none of that is really actually important at all, you know, and it's fun or it tastes good or it's pretty or whatever. But like when it comes down to it, I'm I'm this atomic bundle of energy and light. And like it, that's, that's what brings us together. That is so true. And I I can see it. You, you reflect <laughs> that. I mean, just from looking at you and I see your, it's like you're glowing. Yeah. And it's true. I think when we were younger and growing up, we tried to shrink and, and be like, okay, I don't want too much attention. You know, no one look at me, no one. And what a way to be, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. And then it takes something like, you know, losing someone that you love or a cancer diagnosis to to shine your light. But it happened with me too. You know, I thought like, wow, look what I've been through and I need to get my message out and I need to inspire people. I'm hoping through this podcast, people will do it before they get cancer, right? Oh, I know. Because we're all such valuable beings and people don't see that. Yes. Our worth, our worthiness. I, the driving story in my life for such a long time. Um, and I would say not anymore at all because I, I do know my worth was just that I was not enough. Like I just was, it was never enough. I, I, was a perfectionist. I mean, I call myself a recovering perfectionist, but it doesn't have such a grip on me anymore. You know, that, that sort of survival coping mechanism way of being, um, especially when I'm really well rested and taking care of myself, right. You know, if I'm drained and tired and hungry and, you know, all the things, then the perfectionist is definitely a much stronger story that runs the show. But for the most part, like I just, I see now having become a coach myself and left leaving the career, leaving the the legal profession where winning and losing is the, the, you know, that's, that's the story, right? Like with, with winning and losing, you have, there's a problem that you can win or lose. You go in, you fix it. And, but no matter how much I won, no matter how good I was, no matter how much money I made, no matter how, like there was still the story. And so I think, especially now with cancer, I've been able to really peel back the layers of like get to the truth of the matter and really I have much more clarity. There's not a whole lot of noise. I don't. And when it, when the noise comes up, I just, I can turn it off much faster. And I'm, I have this great joke and, and this will be for anyone who's struggling with their sense of worth, which I did for so long in the last, um, 18 months, my insurance company has been billed $1.5 million to keep me alive. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I now use that number as a marker of just how valuable I am. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Because all these doctors and scientists and nurses and surgeons and radiologists and 
texts and everybody's like, we got to keep this girl alive and she's really expensive. <laughs> and that we could have a whole nother conversation about the broken healthcare system, which I don't really want to have a conversation because I literally got a call this morning for a bill that I didn't even know I had that apparently is in collections and it's a complete nightmare. Uh, and you hear this a lot. Yeah, I started getting upset at the guy. And then I was like, I'm sorry, it's not your fault. I'm just like, but the fact that I am having to deal with this, I, the cancer patient, am having to navigate this system. And I'm like, I'm an extremely sophisticated person who's capable of navigating complicated systems. And for those people that are not, that just give up and then go into bankruptcy and lose all their credit. And then, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's, it's insane what getting sick in this country the ripple effects of that will have on you. Mm. Um, but anyways, know your worth. Don't feel like you have to get cancer in order to know what you're worth <laughs> because dollars obviously do not dollar, you know, money is a construct, right? Our worth is inherent. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you, I want to go back a little bit sure. um, to your husband when, you know, this is a lot to go through as a couple, right? You're newly married, you lose a child. and how did you, you know, cause some, some relationships fall apart, right? So I, I'm curious, did it bring you close together? Were you able to talk about your feelings? And then, you know, of course, then you compound it with cancer also. Mm. Well, we were madly in love with one another and, you know, we were newlyweds. I mean, we were utterly devastated. Initially, I would say that we were like just bonded. There was nothing that he ended up taking 12 weeks of FMLA so that I had already planned on, I had the maternity leave all set up, but then we were like, let's just have you not work for like, let's just be together. And so he took all that time off and I, I donated my breast milk after Poppy died. There was an organization, a milk bank here in the Pacific Northwest called um, the Northwest Mother's Milk Bank. And that's a beautiful story. I was actually a keynote speaker at a fundraiser that they had back in September down in Portland. They're an incredible nonprofit. They've pasteurized and donated over three and a half million ounces of human milk in the last 10 years. And all that milk goes to NICU babies and babies that are you know vulnerable and need help. And I mean, it's just such an incredible mission. Oh, that's amazing. And what's it called? It's called the Northwest Mother's Milk Bank. Okay. Based in, um, they're in Tigard, but it's Portland, Oregon. Incredible. And they have um, now drop-off sites in Oregon, Washington. I think they have Idaho. I'm not sure, but they are, and they're, it's completely nonprofit. So the milk doesn't cost anything for the recipient. What an amazing thing for you to do. Oh my gosh. And that, it saved my life. It saved our life. It gave us, it gave me an opportunity to, to be with Poppy's spirit in this intimate way that a brand new mother was going to be with her baby anyway. You know, I mean, that chooses to breastfeed obviously. And, you know, from expressing my colostrum to eventually using a, a, a pump um, to, to help me extract the milk. But Eli was just like, you know, he sterilized everything and he brought me cold cabbage leaves and he made me lactation cookies. I mean, we were trying to do anything that we possibly could to find meaning and and purpose and, and to be on a schedule and have a reason to wake up. And, you know, I mean, it was just devastating. But we ended up going on this epic road trip. Um and we scattered some of Poppy's ashes in the Grand Canyon. And I mean, it was just, it's, it was, it was 
incredible. But what was really hard was when, you know, real life, quote unquote, began again after both of our leaves ended and he went back to work and I tried going back to work and my depression and the, the anxiety and the reality of, of trying to be in the world again, um, without my child and with, without this sense of purpose and just quite frankly, just the sheer trauma of all of it, having my child die inside of me, having given birth to her, having had to leave her at the hospital, um, you know, just the, just that alone was enough. And I was a social security disability attorney. So I represented people at their administrative law hearings in front of judges to argue for their disability benefits. And so all of my clients were inherently traumatized people whether they had been traumatized physically or with their mental health or a combination thereof. And so I was responsible for representing their story and their lives in front of these judges. Um, And I took my work very seriously and I always did my best to represent the whole human, but I was completely shattered after I went back to work. And I, 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 you know, I told you I was a perfectionist. So like I was an A plus attorney and I came back and I was doing like C minus work and I just couldn't do it. I knew that my nervous system and my soul had to stop and enter into a space of stillness and nothingness and transition and emptiness in order for me to, you know, transmute the sadness into something that would eventually first and foremost, save my own life, but then ultimately save the life of any future child I had, save my marriage, um, ultimately, hopefully help save or transform the life of other mothers and fathers who went through loss, Uh, bringing awareness to such a to a reality like that stillbirth, 24,000 babies are stillborn in the United States every single year. And stillbirth is defined as anything after 20 weeks gestation. I mean, most people I think are maybe aware that one in four pregnancies um, end in miscarriage. So that's a huge number alone. But globally, 2.6 million babies are stillborn every year. And so these are these are real lives. You know, these are and 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 they're lives that for the most part are wanted and desired by the people, you know, by the mothers and fathers who create them. So I hope I answered your question. You did. It was about your husband, you know, and how you handled all that, because I know a lot of people feel alone in it. Yeah. Even though they have a spouse or a significant other, you feel like it's happening to you, right? And only you. I was really lucky. Eli had a traumatic childhood in that his mother had an brain tumor when he was 10, it was finally diagnosed on MRI and she had a bad brain surgery that she never recovered from and was um, essentially completely disabled and had to be in assisted living for the rest of her life. It was very traumatic for him. But if two souls (laughs) could be brought together to survive and support and and get you know get through and really find joy again um Eli and I are you know bonded not only do I love him and 
think he's handsome and appreciate just everything, but like just our stories alone, just our ability to get through hard times. So when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, you can imagine it was very triggering for him because it was like, oh my God, am I reliving my my father's experience? Am, am I is this marriage going to be shorter than I had? Am I going to be a single father raising a child? Am I going to have to take take care? So but what was interesting, he stepped into that caretaker role very naturally because he'd done it for his mother. And then he'd done it for me after Poppy died too. Like he was very much the nurturer and the caretaker. So he's a really unique man. And I I I just love him. I love him to pieces. He drives me crazy sometimes, but I love him. <laughs> uh, right, which is so normal, but I love that. Yes. I love that. Yeah. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting-edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarfulcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. After you were finished with treatment, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times, I don't know if you had to ring a bell or what, what you did, but it's like, you have this feeling like, okay, I should be excited because I'm finished. But like now, what? Mm. you know, now I don't have all the support from the doctors and nurses and the friends and all that stuff. Yeah. And I think that's when the true healing begins. Mm. And so I'm wondering for you, what since you've been finished with treatment, what what does your health care plan look like for you? Mm, yeah. So I would say I'm I'm a kind of a, a special case in that because of what Poppy taught me. Well, I would if someone were like, what's the number one thing that going through the loss of a child taught you? I would say that she taught me how to ask for help. Hands down. I didn't need a lot of help before Poppy died. I wasn't used to asking for a lot of help. I was 35. I was successful, blah, 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 yada, yada. I could take care of myself, all those things. Had money in the bank, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, like the things that you just like, you just did it, right? It was, I was successful, quote unquote. And then she died and none of that mattered. And I was completely like thrown for a loop. And, and so I, I immediately started asking for help and in the same way we were talking about like that when we're younger, we often like push away compliments or we don't receive the love that's there. I learned how to receive 
And so the minute I was diagnosed with cancer, I mean, literally, I had my first ever mammogram on a Monday in March to follow up on a lump that I had found in my breast. I, I This is something just this is a side note. When for anyone listening, those are some of you will relate and some of you will be able to use this information for the future. <laughs> I think especially with breast cancer, because it's a tumor cancer, right? There's a, there's evidence, like there's a symptom and the tumor is the symptom of the cancer. I've had so many people ask me how they found it. How did they find it? And I said, they didn't find it. I did. I found it. I found it because I touched my body because I know what my body feels like because I know that that was unnormal. I knew that what was going on was not, and I, and my intuition was like, this is cancer. So anyways, that setting that aside, the day that I got my call from my naturopath who had, who had gotten a call from the um, radiologist to say, somebody's got to call Katie and tell her she has cancer. Who's it going to be? I was live on Facebook, begging my community for support, asking for prayers, asking for, I, I was just like, okay, y'all like, I need you. I need you again. And so I actually did that the entire time that I was going through treatment. I built up this amazing community of support. I I would say I I called it my army of white light. And that was, you know, that was playing into the war vernacular of cancer, which I have a whole, you know, I could write a whole book on just that alone. I think we've really got to do something about the war vernacular of the fighting and the losing and the beating and the I completely agree. I get really mad, yeah. uh, especially about someone losing their battle. Like that makes me crazy. Right. Exactly. And and it, it doesn't make any sense. And I, and I have to laugh because I think who who at the American Cancer Society, you know, 40 years ago thought, let's this will be a good slogan. And I literally think it probably started that way. Like someone was just like, let's war on cancer, you know, and then it just became a war. But I think, you know, in terms of the feminine uprising and me being a, a you know a, a feminist and a goddess and and you know I we, you know bringing bringing a softer language bringing a, a receptive vernacular into the the whole experience of cancer and and how we can actually give ourselves to the process rather than feel like we always have to like buck up because you tell a cancer patient how strong they are and they and you know and you look at them and you're like what are you talking about I've never been weaker in my entire life like I'm literally not strong I literally can't pick up my kid anymore like how am I strong you know right. so it's like figuring out how to talk about these things but since I wrapped up treatment. So I actually finished my 17th Herceptin and Pergetta infusion at the end of May. So this is sort of my timeline. So I, I got diagnosed within a month I was receiving chemotherapy. Was it up 22? 2022. Yeah. I was diagnosed March of 2022, um, immediately had the whirlwind of the diagnostic phase, which, you know, is a phase in and of itself, like of figuring out what stage is it? Has it progressed? What kind is it? Do you have the genetics? Like all these things that people, I literally remember just looking at my cell phone and all the things that I had planned and just deleting every appointment. I was just like, and I just like, at one point I made a joke with my oncologist scheduler. I was like, would you just like to have my cell phone? And just because my life is being taken away from me, you know, it's, it's for a while, especially because I was stage four. So I had five months of chemotherapy and at the end of chemotherapy, I had a follow-up MRI. And so I actually had, you know, I had cancer in my breast, I had cancer in my lymph nodes, and then I had one met on my sternum. And so I had 
de novo stage four metastatic breast cancer. It was diagnosed at stage four and only 5% of breast cancer cases are actually diagnosed at stage four. Most are, are found earlier. And then if they reoccur, they might metastasize, right? So mine had already metastasized, which is just nuts because it, it was a fast growing cancer, but it's just like, how long was this inside of me? I want someone to figure out how to carbon date cancer. Just be like, this is when that first cell divided. Like how fascinating would that be? Right. And you know, it could be years and years and years. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on the cancer. I mean, some cancers like lobular breast cancer can take like 12, 15 years. It can just be in there like in it and not seen like we, we can't detect these things. So anyway, I had the five months of chemo and then I, um, I had a follow-up MRI, which showed no evidence of cancer. And oh, I just was so happy. And I wanted to quit treatment. I really did. I was like, oh, look, it's gone. And then I had a lot of heart to hearts with my surgeon and my oncologist and the radiologist to say like, it's, it might be, but it might not be. And we can't really stop here. So then I had my mastectomy and my lymph node surgeries in October of last year. And that pathology came back clear. So now I've got two pieces of evidence that are suggesting that the cancer was gone, which was just miraculous. So wonderful. Yeah. Then I had the six weeks of radiation that began in December and finished at the beginning of February. And that was brutal. Um, if you know someone going through radiation, you know, it's, <laughs> it is brutal. The recovery from radiation was definitely the hardest. And granted, I had already been beat down by chemo and surgery. So I had a lot to recover from. Yeah. And did you, did you just feel exhausted? Is that? Oh my gosh. Utterly, utterly exhausted. I couldn't make it through a single day. I would pass out my daughter would get home from preschool at three o'clock. And, and if I had probably already napped that day, but I would go pick her up and then I would get her a snack and she would sit in front of the TV and I would generally just, I mean, and I say pass out because it was uncontrollable. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go lay down and take a nap. It was like, I would fall asleep on the couch. And oftentimes I would wake up like three hours later and thank goodness she loves television. Um, don't judge yourself, people. If you have children and you're recovering from these things, like there's no room for judgment. Like let your children watch TV. They will be fine. But I would wake up and I would like be drooling on myself and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I need to feed my family. Like I should make some dinner. And I would just like crawl off the couch and go and, and make some food and then figure out a way to get back into bed as soon as I could. Yeah, it was brutal. Yeah. The recovery process. And I will, you know, I, I, you know, I know we obviously can't talk forever, but I have so many things that I did along the way. I mean, since I got sort of that, you know, no evidence of active disease, any AD declaration after my CT and MRI scans this past June, gosh, what have I been doing? I mean, I've just been celebrating. I, I, I definitely, I hit the ground running. I'm like, there are all these things I want to do. There's all these stories I want to tell. There's all this, um, wisdom that I'm, that I'm integrating into my, into my body, into my life, into my, my story, into my coaching practice, into my writing, into my experience as a parent, my relationship with myself, but I was doing stuff all along. You know, I, I, I love your podcast. I listened to the two most recent episodes in anticipation of our conversation. And I was literally taking notes because I was just like, these people are brilliant. And, and I'm like, yay, I've been doing most of all of this stuff already. Oh, great. You know, especially the radical remission stuff. Like it's just incredible. I was kind of living that kind of life that that's one of my, 
I was kind of living a radical remission life before, and I still got cancer. So here's one thing I want to throw out there that I think is sort of an unconventional story is that I was sitting in my oncologist's office probably four and a half months into chemo. So I did five months. So pretty, pretty brain foggy at this point, pretty, pretty messed up, you know, like at this point, depressed, like trauma setting in, like I, I was a, I was a wreck. I was an emotional wreck because I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I don't think you can see the light at the end of the tunnel when you're four months into chemo. That's, that's, that's the design, right? You're just trying to survive and feel okay. You know? Yeah, you really are. You're just like, is this ever going to be over? Or am I ever going to feel okay in my body again? Is this pain in my joints ever going to go away? Am I ever going to be able to pick up my child again? Am I ever going to be able to stand up from a chair and and not walk around like an 80 year old? I mean, I was just, they just beat me down. But my oncologist at one point, so I was asking all these questions, very thoughtful questions. And at one point she says, Katie, I feel like I have to remind you of something. And I'm like, okay, what's that doc? And she's like, cancer isn't sentient. And I was like, oh, right. This isn't personal. Like, it's just a bunch of rapidly reproducing cells that are not in control of themselves. Like, it's literally out of control. It's not like, we're going to grow in Katie's body, and then we're going to just destroy her and we're going to take her down. The cancer cells don't think. They don't have feelings. They don't have emotions. They're not a lot. They're not like they're not sentient. You know, they they it's not personal. And so I want to say that in the context of I lived a very healthy life before I had cancer. I probably didn't sleep as much as, you know, I should have, but hello, that's sort of the American way of being. Um and I had had a lot of trauma. So I definitely feel like from a spiritual perspective, that probably has a lot to do with why my immune system was weak and that these cancer cells took over. But the hard part, I think, as a cancer survivor now is when you're like, if I was doing everything I thought I needed to do to prevent cancer in the first place, and then I got it anyways, how do I prevent it going forward? Or what do I do now? And and so it's just, it's I don't think a lot of people talk enough about that. No, I get really annoyed when I, when I'm like sitting in a support group or something, or if I get an email newsletter from some cancer thing and they're like, how to prevent cancer, how to live a preventative cancer lifestyle. And I'm like, I have cancer. Like, what am I supposed to do when you already have it? And you are doing all of the things that everybody is telling you should be the things to prevent it or to prevent it from coming back. And that's, I think for me, the surrender part, that's where the the intuition part, the mindset part, the self-compassion part, the part of just, again, going back to this, like I am a physical, I am a spiritual being having a physical experience. And for as long as this body works, I'm in it but I'm not going to get too attached to it. Mm. I can't. I'm just nodding. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just nodding at everything you're saying because there's like, we talked about fighting, you know, even in the alternative world, it's like, 
you know, trying this therapy and and that therapy and am I getting enough sleep and am I completely stressed out? And then you're stressing yourself out that you're not doing all these things you're supposed to be doing. So if you could just let go a little bit. Yes. And just release, you're living in more harmony, you know? That's it. It's that's it. I, I, I've been working on um, continuing to build my coaching practice. And I really had to take a big step back because I stopped the practice of law. I took time to heal. I went into this space of nothingness. It was all about meditation and, and movement and taking care of my puppy that we adopted and writing and just surrendering and accepting. And, and, and then I met a life coach and I was like, what is that? This was back in 2016 when life coaching was not, you know, not every single neighbor was a life coach. (laughs) There's a lot of coaches out there now and and they're amazing. I love the coaching industry, but, um, I was like, what's life coaching. And then I started working with this guy And then I loved that process so much that I ended up going to school for life coaching and I started a practice in 2017 and I've been doing it ever since, but I've, I had to take a massive step back and I didn't coach at all basically for a year and a half while I was getting treatment because my brain wasn't online. I I couldn't hold space with other people. I had to say, you know what? I don't even, I can't even, I can't, I just got to go back to bed. So now that I'm back and well, and so fired up and so motivated and so inspired. Well, now you're working with people. I'm working with people. And is it cancer survivors or is it people with grief, any kind of grief? You know, I'm mostly working with mothers um, it ends up being that I mostly work with women who also happen to be mothers. And and the the journey is really taking a look at the subconscious limiting beliefs that hold us back and and the uncovering of that. And and you know, the work that I do with my clients is so rewarding because I get to see them in their breakthroughs. I get to hold space with them in these breakdowns where they're like, I'm tired of this way of thinking. I'm tired of this way of being. You know, I mean, we're just so many people are just exhausted with the status quo. But, and you know, because we did all the things that we thought we were supposed to do to be happy and feel satisfied. And then we did all those things and we got there and we're like, I'm still not satisfied. Like, or I'm tired. I did all the things, but I'm exhausted. So, how do I actually enjoy all the abundance in my life? Like, how do I embrace it? And so, we work a lot on priorities. We look where we work a lot on boundaries. We work a lot about self compassion and mindset. And so, it's just, it's been fascinating because I have so much perspective now. I can get so high level and, and help people get out of the muck, right? Because I've been in it. I've been in the muck. I know what it's like to be there. I can also hold space with them in the muck and just hold that compassionate space. Right. Because you know, when you were going through all that, I'm sure it just helped to be listened to. Absolutely. It being listened to, I think speaking out loud, and and that's a huge piece of, of telling your story for me, like making meaning out of the things that happened to us, never letting anyone say, oh, God has a plan or this happened for a purpose. Like, yeah, well, what is it? Like, you, do you know, did God like send you a letter and tell me what the purpose is? Like, <laughs> I, you know, like I'm really like, we have to take ownership over that and find the meaning, find the purpose, and then, and then use that to propel us forward. And it's about empowerment, right? Like I am empowered because I've decided why these things have happened to me and I'm using them for me as opposed to, 
being in this victim mentality where it's like, oh, I, you know, everything just keeps happening to me. I, I am a very responsible person in that I say, okay, what, what was my part in this? And then that might be like, oh, I need to change my lifestyle. I sleep so much more, y'all. I take naps every single day. Like I, the self-care is, is through the roof and I prioritize me. I prioritize me. I am, I am my number one priority, not my daughter not my husband, not my marriage, not my business, not my house, nothing. Yeah. And this, uh, and this is going to help your daughter so much because she's going to see. Exactly. You have to model. You're a role model. Exactly. And we model this to others. And so, you know, I walk the walk, I talk the talk, I, you know, I do the work and at this point I'm, I'm just so excited about using the things that have happened to me, right? Like in the same way that I did when my daughter died and using this cancer journey, this experience with cancer to help other people wake up. And no, you don't need a life altering diagnosis to have these breakthroughs. You, I, I, you know, I would say, don't do that to yourself. You don't need to make yourself chronically ill. Although for those of us who are walking this earth, when you look at the most inspiring people out there, usually their origin story is like, I was flat on the ground, like life had beat me down. And then I figured out a way to come up out of that, right? Like there are very few, so true. you know, very few truly inspirational influencers or thought leaders or who like have had a very easy life and have never had any struggles. Like it's just, <laughs> and I don't think, <laughs> right. Humans in general are gonna have pain. It's a tough, yeah. Li- life is suffering, right? But and you know when you you know borrowing from the the Buddha who was just so brilliant, and now neuroscience is supporting everything that the Buddha discovered in meditation. But you know, life is suffering. So the dart, you think about a dart, like so a dart comes at you, boing, and it you know it sticks you in your cheek, and you're like, oh, that really hurt what we do as humans is then we hold on to that pain and then we start throwing more darts. We throw darts. Dart two is like, Oh, I shouldn't have been standing in the way. Okay. That's dart two. And then dart three is like, Oh, well I, I need to get this out. And like, Oh, well I don't, now I hate the way I look because I've got this hole in my cheek. And then, and then dart four is like, Oh, I can't go out of the house because I'm, I'm a loser. And then it's, I mean, you know, just, we literally just dart, 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 dart. We're all, we're, we're, we are, perpetuating our suffering. So it's like, it's being able to say, oh, okay, who's in control? I'm doing this to myself. This is actually my thought process that I can stop. There's a space. I can respond to this differently. The pain is coming at me. The, The mean thing my child said, or the guy who cut me off on the highway or the bill that I got that I didn't realize that I had forgotten to pay or right. Like all of these things, they just, they're always coming at us, but it's how we respond. Right. And what got you to that point? What got you out of the darkness? Did, was this something that you always had inside you, do you think, or was it just self-reflection? I think it's a combination of something that I've always had inside me. I knew as a young girl, I, I remember my favorite quote, I think it was Socrates when I was like 12 or 13, my favorite quote was the unexamined life is not worth living. (laughs) Amazing. Wait, how old? 12, 13. Oh, 12. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 
yeah, I was just like, well, yeah, you've got to, you've got to reflect, you've got to think, you've got to think critically. You've got, so that was always, so I was always drawn to that, but, but my, but my journey has been very circuitous because, you know, I went to law school because like, that's how you're going to help people. And, you know, and, 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 and I, so I followed the rules for a really long time and now I'm, I'm, I'm trying to live my authentic expression in a, in a more sort of outside of the box way. Thankfully, my husband is very well grounded and has a really great job because I mean, since I left my work as an attorney in 2016, like I, I have not made very much money, but you know what I have made? I've made a ton of impact. I've made a ton of difference in the lives of my 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 family, my friends, my community, the people who follow me on you know social media, the people who have read my book, the the mothers who have been through loss, other cancer survivors. I mean, I have people from all over the world now sharing with me. Yes, I'm just saying, how good does that feel? I mean, it feels so good. You probably feel like okay. I mean, yes, you made an impact as an attorney, but you're making way, way, way more impact. Way more way more impact because my message is, you know, my message is global. It's very spiritual. I I'll share one thing that I think, um, would be helpful for anyone going through cancer. Um, I started a dream journal, um, when I was going through chemotherapy and a friend of mine, um, who is a, a therapist and is big into dream interpretation, encouraged me to do that. And, um, so I started paying attention to my dreams and writing them down when I woke up in the morning or recording them on my phone. If I, if I was too foggy and I couldn't write it out, cause you know, dreams, they just kind of evaporate the second we wake up. But if you start really paying attention to them, they will teach you things and, and your intuition is, can, can sometimes send you messages. So I was, I was, uh, it was August. Um, so I always, I was almost done with chemotherapy and um, I went to bed that night and I had a dream, but I couldn't remember it. And I, I woke up the next day and I was, I remember I was opening the shades to my curtain in my bedroom. And I, I was like, I feel different. Like I had this weird feeling that the cancer was gone. Like just really like, what? Like, you know, I've had experiences like that before. And I wrote about them in my, my memoir where like, I didn't trust my intuition because the skeptical part of my brain started overriding like what I knew to be true in my spirit. So I had this, I was like, what, why do I feel so different? Like, why do I think that the cancer is gone? This is weird. And so I made myself a bowl of oatmeal that morning and I started eating it. And this dream came back to me. It started, the dream just flooded in. And in my dream, I was eating a bowl of oatmeal and I'm eating the oatmeal in my dream. And I spit out my cancer. I spit it into the bowl of oatmeal and it's this hard gray clumpy piece of like metallic thing. And I look at it and I'm like, huh, that's gross. And I take my spoon and I toss it out to the side and I say, I don't need that anymore. And I keep eating my oatmeal. And so I'm in now waking life and I'm eating oatmeal and this dream is coming back to me. And I was like, oh my God, I, I think that's, I think that's why. I think that's why I woke up feeling different. I think that the cancer is gone. I think, is the cancer gone? The cancer's gone? I'm like, is it gone? And so I held on to this dream as like kind of a sacred secret 
I didn't really want to tell anybody because I was like, that's kind of weird. Wow. Within a within a week, I got a care package in the mail. And it was from a woman that actually donated a lot of breast milk to me when Moxie was born because I wasn't producing very much. And so we have that bond of her having supported my living child's life. And it was such a, you know, a gift of reciprocity in that way. But it was a care package and it had like fuzzy socks and a face mask and like all these sweet things. And then there was this little muslin sack and I opened it up and I like, I'm looking at this and it was, it was a chunk of hematite. And if you know what hematite looks like, it's gray and metallic and chunky. Mm. And I'm looking at it and I go, oh my God, that's exactly what my cancer looked like in my dream. It was just like exactly the amount, the weight, the size, the density, the color, all of it. And I immediately picked up my phone and I sent her a message and I was like, Bryce, you have to tell me. Cause I had posted at that point, I had posted about my dream on Facebook because I wanted people to know. Cause I'm like, I got to tell, I, at, at this point I wanted to tell. So, so I said, Bryce, you have to tell me this rock. Did, did you see me tell my story about spitting my cancer out in my oatmeal? She says, I did. I said, okay, I have to know the next thing. Had you bought this rock for me before you knew that I had the dream? And she said, yes, I I had this rock in my possession for you before I knew that you'd had the dream. And then I saw that you had the dream and I knew I had to send you the rock. Oh my goodness. Right? Right. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So this rock, which I still have, actually, let me grab it for you. I know your listeners can't see this, but I know that for your benefit. Oh, yes. Wow. And was it that size? I mean, close to that size that you spit out that you... Yeah. Unbelievable. So then I take this rock at that point with me everywhere. It's in my pocket. It's like that rubbing stone. And I I would hold this rock. And so then I found out more about hematite. And hematite is a very grounding rock. And it, it's a... It absorbs. It like it it hold, it takes stuff from things. So then I I'm holding it with me and I take it everywhere I go. And I envision any rogue cancer cells at that point. I'm like any rogue cancer cells. I'm like holding it in my hand and I'm I'm giving those cells permission to be sucked into this hematite. Mm. If there's anything left in me, you know, if they're because cancer cells are tiny, right? And you don't want any of them, right? So I mean, all this is so esoteric and, you know, some people could poo-poo it or whatever. You know, I, one of your guests talked about the woo. I'm extremely woo-woo. <laughs> yes. I think a lot of the people I surround myself with are and- Mega woo. <laughs> right. I mean, to look at signs. Yes. So many signs. They're all around us. They're everywhere. And so my daughter, you know, my daughter was the one that originally Poppy ended up tapping me into signs because she now sends me signs every single day. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah. So I just, I want people to, you know, give themselves permission to believe in the possibility of of miracles happening and i do feel now that i am a miracle i am a walking miracle and i want to inspire other people to see the miracle of their own life uh this is so perfect to to end this and to go into random round i i love what you said and i think people are going to really resonate so thank you thank you and Are you ready for random round? 
Yeah. Okay. We'll just go through it quickly. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is authenticity, just being myself, just letting myself be kooky and fun and weird and silly and beautiful and just, you know, trusting the process. The last show you binged and loved. Oh my gosh. I do like TV. I know one of your guests said that he didn't watch TV and I was like, oh, he's missing out. There's so much good stuff on TV, but there's a lot of crap. Um, So I'm not going to, I'm going to say The Righteous Gemstones. Um, It's on Max, I believe, formerly HBO. Um, my husband and I are watching it together. Um, it is incredibly irreverent and just, it tickles all of my, my, all of the silly parts in me that think that like the big church industry in the United States, it, it, if anyone, if anyone feels like me, like where they lost their faith in the church a long time ago, you'll get a real kick out of this story. (laughs) The righteous gemstones. When you are feeling afraid, what do you do? Oh gosh. A lot of times I, I crawl back into bed. I mean, bed is a very safe space. It's a sacred space for me to heal. Um, I also do a lot of yoga nidra, um, which is a beautiful practice um, to activate my parasympathetic nervous system. So when I'm in fear, I, I, if bed is not an option, I will do whatever I know that will help me activate my parasympathetic nervous system and help my body know that the, that the, you know, whatever it is, if I'm, if I'm fighting, if I'm running, if I'm flooded, if I'm frozen, that, that doesn't, it isn't necessarily real, you know, it's a, I mean, it's a feeling in my body, but I can get out of that. And I have tools for that. If you can have a one hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? Mm. I thought about this one and there are all sorts of famous, amazing people that I, you know, could talk to, but I think if I had one hour, it would be my dad. Yeah. He passed away in February of 2019. And if I could just sit down and have another one hour and also a big, big hug, mm, that that's who it would be with. What is your favorite go-to snack? Mm. I love peanut butter. I love peanut butter. Yeah. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> what is one simple thing that brings you joy? Um, being a mommy. I love it. I love it. What is on your nightstand? Um, I have been mouth taping recently. I just finished reading breath by James Nestor, which I highly recommend. I'm a lifelong yogi. And, um, one, of the things that I learned was mouth taping so that you sleep with your mouth closed and don't snore. And that has been really an interesting process for me. Um, also some really nice, uh, lip balm and, um, my cell phone, which, cause I, I fall asleep to a lot of meditations, which are really great. What else is on my nightstand? My Kindle, my books. Yeah. What is your favorite form of exercise? Yoga. I I think I would say yoga. I mean, but gosh, I love hiking and and walking, being out in nature. But yoga has been that consistent anchor for me throughout my life. Um, I was so lucky. I was exposed to yoga when I was 16 back in the 90s. And I've been doing it ever since. And so it's gotten me through a lot of hard times. 
And what is one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? Mm. I mean, opportunities like this are just so special to connect with someone like you and to tell my story, to be seen, you know, to be heard, to be witnessed. It's such an integral part to my healing process. Um, and, and my little family, I'm so thankful for my little family. And last, where can people find you if they want to learn more? I know you have a website. Yeah. So people can find me on my website. It's katiejoyduke.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram, katiejoyduke.com. You can find my book on Amazon uh, and Audible. I narrated um, Still Breathing. And so that was a real special thing for me. I just released it this past August because I had to take a break when I was going through uh, cancer treatment. So to have accomplished that um, on top of everything else is just a, a really big win for me. Uh, well. Katie, thank you so much. This was just so enjoyable. I know people are going to get so much out of it. And, you know, people that are are hurting, just they can listen to you and know that you can get out of it and it's going to be okay. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Haley. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.